there was a little boy uh, who approached Santa at the mall with a long list of requests. He pulled out his Christmas list and he began to read, I want a bicycle, I want a sled, I want a cowboy suit, I want a set of trains, I want a trampoline, I want a monster jam garage playset, and I want a baseball glove. Well, that's a pretty long list, Santa said sternly. I'll have to check in my book to see if you're a good boy. No, no, the youngster said quickly, never mind checking. I'll just take the baseball glove. <laughs> I think he kind of knew where that was going to go. Well, it's tis the season for Christmas lists. Well, God is a Christmas list of his own, if you will. It's found in what seems like a snow flurry of disconnected commands. It's found in what the passage that was just read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 to the end of the chapter. And I invite you to turn there in your Bibles, if you're not there, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, the passage that was just read for us. And as we've been making our way through the first letter to the church in Thessalonica, we've seen a church that is overall is healthy. I didn't say perfect church, for that didn't exist then or at any other time or place. But their vital signs were good. It was a young church founded by Paul and, and his team until they were driven out, you might recall, by opposers to the gospel, those who were jealous of their ministry. And you might also recall that as we read through this, this book, that Paul longed to visit the church he helped to establish, but for one reason or another, he wasn't able to return. But he was so concerned for their well-being, and he, and he cared for them so much that he sent Timothy, one of his team members, to go to Thessalonica and check in on them. And so Timothy, he goes off, he visits the church in Thessalonica on Paul's behalf, and then he returns with a progress report that was favorable. Now likely, he also returned with some questions the church had for Paul to answer, and it was in chapters 4 and 5 that Paul addresses their questions. At least that's my take on it. And there seemed to be questions related to Christ's second advent, when he would return to take his children home and judge the world. There also seemed to be questions around how to live in community, how to enjoy peace and harmony in the church. And we looked at that last week. And then as Paul closes this letter that will be sent to them, likely hand-delivered by Timothy, and then read to the entire church as it tells us down there in verse 27, Paul now ends with how we are to worship together as believers how we are to worship together as a community. And so we finish up our time in this book this morning. We will then uh, turn our thoughts to the first Advent with a two-week series on All I Want for Christmas. And then the new year, we'll work through the first eight chapters in Romans. This morning, we're looking at 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 28. Now, I'm treating this section as God's Christmas list. For it's clear that this is what God wants of us, not only this season of Advent, but for the year and years to come. 
And I base that on verse 18 of chapter 5. You'll notice at the very end of verse 18, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. God's Christmas list for you. This is what he wants for us. We saw a few weeks back that, um, that clearly God's will was that we be sanctified. Well, we see that phrase again. It is God's will. What is God's will for us? What does he want from us? And and the passage that we're looking at this morning. Well, have your eyes go to verse 16 now of of 1 Thessalonians 5. Where it says, be joyful always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances. Now what is most striking about these commands is the universals attached to each one. It's the always, the continually, and the all that make the doing of them feel impossible. I mean, we might be able to achieve this if it said rejoice sometimes, right? Or, if, or pray, you know, when you, when you can. Or give thanks as often as possible. We can say, okay, I can reach that. Yet God's Christmas list to his church is rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances. Now, it's worth noting that this is addressed to the church as a whole. This is what the church ought to be doing. Each of the verbs in this section is in the plural. But since the church is made up of individuals, you're either contributing to this or you're taking away from it when we are together publicly. And so Paul now, he moves from how we're to live in community, as we saw last week, to how we are to worship together as believers. How we're to worship together as believers. This is what ought to happen when the people of God are together, rejoicing always, praying continually, giving thanks in all circumstances. So how are we doing there? Well, let's check our vital signs as we close out our time in the study. We begin with checking our attitudes. Check our attitudes There are three always attitudes we're to have. First of all, we are to rejoice always. Now, in the original uh, Greek language, the always is placed first. I believe uh, the reason it's doing that is suggest emphasis is on the always. It literally says always emphasis, rejoice. Always. Pastor, I mean, have you seen the news? Pastor, did you hear about my latest doctor's report? Always? Always? How can I possibly rejoice when that teacher is giving me a hard time? How can I possibly do my dream job turned into a nightmare? Always? When I have too many bills left to pay, when my cash is gone? Always? How can I possibly be joyful when my spouse ignores my needs, when all I want is this one thing to happen in my life and it goes unmet? Always rejoice? You've got to be kidding me. Now, just in case you wonder about the receivers, the recipients of this letter, I remind you that the people Paul's writing to They're undergoing extreme hardship because of their faith. Their circumstances are anything but pleasant. And they might be going, Paul, always? Are you kidding me? I mean, they could sing it's a hard knock life for us, right? Instead of treated, we get tricked. Instead of kisses, we get kicked. It's the hard knock life. 
Don't it feel like the wind is always howling? Doesn't it seem like there's never any light once a day? Don't you want to throw the towel in? It's easier than putting up a fight. And yet you have this command, you have this invitation to those who might even this morning in this room feel like throwing in the towel and giving up. And he says, always rejoice. Now, of course, this is not a sugar-coated call for putting on a happy face in the midst of difficulties. Real grief is not at odds with this command to always rejoice. Sorrow and sadness are are, are not contrary to God's will. Actually, quite frankly, I'm uncomfortable around those who pretend all is okay when I know better. Always rejoice does not deny pain. It doesn't ignore reality. It doesn't forbid weeping. This is why it's a command. No one can be commanded to be happy about their circumstances. You cannot cannot compel someone to look favorably at the unpleasant stuff going on in their life. But the call to rejoice cannot be canceled out by any situation. Now again, we need to think of this in the context of worship. For example, on Sunday morning, as we gather for worship, we, 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 we invite you to rejoice. Right? We don't all, it's not always we start with that. But often, our worship, and it did this morning, it begins with a call to celebrate. Celebrate. Now, we're not in any way being indifferent to your situation. We're not even asking you to fake it until you make it. The call to rejoice, not in your, not in your adversity, but rejoice in the God who will faithfully walk with you through that difficulty. Rejoice that it will make you a better worshiper of him. So we come here, we gather here to Rejoice. And whether you feel beat up by this past week, and some of you may be there, or you feel saddened by the events happening on the world stage, or you're experiencing difficulties in your life, or you enter this room this morning, you have all kinds of anxiety and and, and stress, and, and you have all kinds of reasons for concern, we're going, we invite you to rejoice. It's an invitation to give some space from all the stuff that's going on in your life to refocus on the one who is present in your situation, no matter how agonizing it may be. Stories told of a king who often traveled away from his palace. And one day, a man living near the palace remarked to his friend, well, it looks like the king is home tonight. Well, how do you know, asked his friend. The man pointed toward the castle. He says, because when the king is home, he said, the palace is all lit up. You know, in the UK, one can tell when the, uh, the sovereign is at home and a special flag is flying. That's the way it is for us. That's the way of joy. Joy is the flag that flies over the believer's heart to signify the king is in residence today. You might remember the, the chorus of long ago, joy's the flag flown high from the castle of my heart, from the castle of my heart, from the castle of my heart. Joy is the flag flown high from the castle of my heart when the king is in residence there. Is the king in residence in your life? You kind of bumped him off the throne and you put yourself there instead? Always rejoice. That's God's will for you. It's on God's Christmas list. How are you cultivating an attitude of joy? 
Let's check our attitude there. Our second attitude to check is pray continually. Pray continually. Some translate it, pray without ceasing. Now, just as in the first command, uh, the continually is placed first before pray, I believe, for emphasis. It is continually pray, or without ceasing emphasis, pray. It's not speaking here as to how to pray or what's the right posture for prayer, but rather it's about when to pray without ceasing. It means to do something continuously. It means to never stop praying. Well, I'm not praying right now. I'm preaching. And I suppose you might be praying as I preach. I we got to get done in time. I don't know. But you're saying we all have other things to do throughout the day. We have errands and we have responsibilities in life. We can't be just face down in prayer all day. Back in the 80s, well-known evangelist Billy Graham was invited to appear on the Today Show. And when he arrived at the studio, one of the program's uh, producers informed Graham's assistant that a private room had been set aside for the reverend for prayer before the broadcast. The assistant thanked the producer for the thoughtful gesture, but then told them that Mr. Graham would not need the prayer room. The producer was a bit shocked that a world-famous Christian leader would not wish to pray before being interviewed on a live national television. Well, Graham's assistant responded to that, and he said, well, Mr. Graham started praying when he got up this morning. He prayed while eating his breakfast. He prayed on the way over in the car, and he'll probably be praying all the way through the interview. See, if you see prayer as a prescribed time and place in which you go off into a particular room, you get down on your knees, you fold your hands, you bow your head, you you close your eyes, and you say certain things to God. I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm saying, but if that's the only way you see prayer, that that's at a prescribed time, then it's nearly impossible then to follow Paul's instruction here. How could one possibly do this nonstop? Some of you know what it's like to have a cough that doesn't seem to go away, right? You you get a little tickle in your throat, and the only remedy is kind of cough. The problem is the tickle quickly returns, and no matter how you try to stop it, another cough is going to happen soon. And there you are talking with someone in your conversation. It's a little embarrassing. You got to stop, and you got to cough. You don't want to draw attention to yourself, but you just can't hide the need to cough. Well, interestingly... Without ceasing was a term used to describe a persistent hacking cough. What God wants for you is not to be in prayer every minute and every second of every day on your face and working through that. But he wants prayer to be such an important and natural part of your life that would overtake you consistently, almost without warning, like that nagging cough. He wants it to to be something that you simply cannot avoid, even if you try. Comes over you, I need to pray. Arrows of prayer. Now, again, we need to think attitude. Attitude. I mean, is prayer an occasion that interrupts all other occasions? Or is it to be an attitude toward God that permeates all of life's occasions? To pray continually means we don't treat prayer as a last alternative when all else fails. It's to be an attitude of prayer that acknowledges our total dependence on God all day, 
all the time. And as we enter into worship with others this morning, we are all to recognize that we are entering into God's presence here. We come in an attitude of prayer this morning as we gather. We come with an expectancy that God hears us and he knows us. And he's the God who will keep his promises. That's the attitude of praying without ceasing. To be in an attitude of prayer means we continually tap into God's resources. It means we're handing over to God. Here it is. We're handing over to God whatever is getting in the way of rejoicing in the Lord. Because joy and prayer, they're connected. And perhaps this morning, you come in this room, you find it nearly impossible to respond to the call to rejoice. Because you're so weighed down by the burdens of life. At a Presbyterian church in Omaha, as people entered the sanctuary, they were all given helium-filled balloons. I said, first service, I thought about doing that, but I was too cheap to buy you all balloons. And this, but they were, and they were given these balloons, and they were instructed to release them at some point during the service when they felt like expressing joy in their hearts. He was the kind of church where it didn't really lend itself to going, hallelujah, and praise the Lord. So they had the balloon instead. And so all throughout the service, balloons were released and ascended to the ceiling. That's another reason I didn't do this. That'd be a nightmare. <laughs> all released to the ceiling. However, when the service was over, interesting enough, one-third of the balloons remained unreleased. One-third of the worshipers were still holding on to their helium-filled balloons. Are you holding on to your balloon this morning? Are you grasping ever so tightly in all the cares and concerns in your life? And you're like, I got no joy in my life. I can't let go of this. I need to hold on to it. God needs me. On God's Christmas list that he wants to give you is this call to pray without ceasing. Let your balloon go and release the joy in your life. For there's joy in the Lord. And you see, the more we can live every day, and, I, and I'm a work in progress here, the more we can live every day with an awareness of God's presence, with a sense of, of, of fellowship with God throughout the day, and we live in an attitude of dependence on Him, we are better than able to rejoice. Without ceasing, pray. The beautiful thing is God has an open door policy. You can show up whenever you want as often as you want to God. Hebrews 4 tells us, let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. Hebrews 4.16. God wants that for you. He wants that for me. To enter in all the time. Praying without ceasing it's on God's Christmas list. All right, third attitude, and it ties to these other two. They're not disconnected. Third one is giving thanks in all circumstances. We need to check our attitude here. And a couple, few weeks ago, um, leading up to Thanksgiving, we, we spent some time on giving thanks. Well, here we are again. And like the other two commands in this section, the verse reads, in all circumstances, give thanks. The all is at the beginning of the phrase, 
I believe, for emphasis. And while always referring to rejoicing and continually referring to praying, they speak to time. The all here focuses on circumstances rather than time. At a church, an usher greeted a cranky old-timer at church. He always found something wrong with everything in his life. And, and the greeter greeted him and said, Brother Bob, how are you doing? And Bob answered, doing good under the circumstances. And the usher then replied, well, Bob, what are you doing under the circumstances? <laughs> it's a good answer. Don't try it on the people here this morning, but you get the point. What are you doing under the circumstances? Now, I have to be careful here. Is God saying that we should be thankful for all things that come into our lives? Is it reasonable to think that God would want us to be thankful for sinful acts against me? Were those victims of the Holocaust to be thankful for the evil being carried out? Well, perhaps it's the modifier here, in all circumstances, rather than saying for all circumstances that put in perspective. That may mark the difference here. I don't know. Some have made, you know, preach sermons on just that phrase right there, maybe. The point here, though, the point here and other places in Scripture that call us to give thanks is directly related to what we believe about God. And that's where it kind of breaks down. Do we believe that a sovereign God can turn any situation, even something meant for evil, to our good and for his glory? Do I believe that? Do I act like I believe that? Do we believe that God can enable us to live triumphantly in the face of an adverse, any adversity or difficult circumstance? Do we believe that God can use whatever it is we're going through to grow us? Do we believe that God is always good? And do we believe that the gospel promises us eternal place in heaven where there'll be no tears, no evil, no presence of sin, and where we would discover that even the best thing here on this earth is no match to what God will give us there. Do we believe that? <laughs> Do I act like I believe that? See, God wants us to have a thankful heart. Why? Because we have been saved by God's grace and mercy. And Jesus' death for us proves God's commitment to turn even the worst of circumstances into the best salvation for our souls. Now remember, what holds this section together is the theme of worship. How can we be better worshipers? Always rejoice, continually pray, and at all times give thanks. We bring that in, or we don't. Check our attitudes. All right, how can we be better worshipers? Secondly, Stay balanced. I got two other points here. Don't worry. They're not going to be as long as the first point because some of you, that might concern you. That's when you're going to start praying that we get done soon. Verse 19, though, stay balanced. Stay balanced, all right? Verse 19, do not put out the Spirit's fire. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. Test everything. Hold on to the good. Avoid every kind of evil. Now, again, Paul gives a snow flurry of commands that at first pass may seem disconnected. But what is it that ties these commands together? I believe it's this. Listening to God's word. Listening to God's word. We must stay balanced here, though. On the one hand, listen to the word of God. But on the other hand, don't accept everything we hear. 
That first phrase there uh, in the NIV, it says, do not put out the Spirit's fire. Not the best um, way to translate that because fire isn't even in the original. It's really best to go with how others translate it. And I think it was read this way this morning. Do not quench the Spirit. How do we quench the Spirit? Next phrase answers that. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. Now, much has been written on the gift of prophecy. I'm not going to go down that road too long here, because, but in Paul's day, when he was writing this, they didn't have the completion of Scripture. So, so prophecy and a word of prophecy was necessary for the church. All right, is it still a gift for today? Did the gift of prophecy end with the completion of the written word? Is prophecy just another way of speaking, of preaching? We can spend time on that. I don't really want to. But if someone, I will say this, if someone holds to the gift of prophecy today, it must line up with the teaching of Scripture. And I would argue that the word of prophecy does not have the same authority as the Bible. And in most cases, not all cases, but in most cases, those churches who believe that the gift of prophecy is for today, they would still agree to and hold to the absolute supremacy, sufficiency, and adequacy of Scripture. They ought to. But I don't want us to miss the application. Listen to God's Word. Don't treat it with contempt. Because anytime we choose not to listen and obey God's word, we quench the spirit of God. So listen to the word of God. Listen to what the spirit of God wants to say into your life today. But don't accept everything you hear either. Notice it says here, right in the middle, test everything. Now, actually, the word for test was the word that was used referring to the process of heating up ore to purify it. So we're to test teaching in the same way. We're to be critical thinkers and discerning between true and false teaching for the world is filled with fool's gold. There are many voices out there that claim to be the voice of God. Church, don't be easily duped. Test it. How do we test it? There are other ways, but I'm going to give you four right here. First of all, we test, it's the test of Scripture. That's one way we test it. Test of Scripture is what the preacher or teacher is saying line up with what the Bible says. You got to know your Bibles. Second test is the test of Jesus' divinity. Is what is being taught line up with the truth that Jesus is from God, that Jesus is equal with God, and that Jesus came in the flesh. Third test is the gospel test. The gospel test is what is being taught agree with the gospel of Jesus Christ that we are saved by grace through faith and not by our own works. It's one more test. It's a test of the person's character. When you hear someone claiming to be a spokesperson for God, test his or her teaching in the ways I just, just laid out, but also look at the person's character. For Jesus said, by their fruit we can recognize those who are wolves in sheep's clothing. Here's the tricky part. Those teachers, they don't come dressed in wolf's clothing. Because we'd all go, oh, you're a wolf. I'm not falling for that. They're dressed in sheep's clothing. I go, oh, man, how do we do this? The test that I just out, uh, outlined for you. Listen to the word of God, church, but don't believe everything you hear. Test it. And if it passes the test, do what it then says. Hold on to the good. 
If it passes the test, then hold on to it tightly. Don't let it go. Listen to God's word being taught. Take it in. Receive it. Hold on to make sure it doesn't get away. Let it change your life. Hold on to it. But don't trust everything you hear. If it doesn't pass the test, then avoid it, it says. Avoid every kind of evil. Now, this verse has been butchered and misunderstood by many. I'm not going to talk about that. In context, though, avoid every kind of evil. It means stay clear away from any teachings that are not of God. Stay clear away of any teaching that is not of God. Keep your distance from. Now, as editor of the Emporia, um, Gazette, William White received many articles from aspiring writers, but he returned most of those to their, to their authors with rejection slips. One disappointed and bitter person wrote back to White, Sir, you sent back a story of mine. I know that you did not read it because as a test, I pasted together pages 19 and 20. The manuscript came back with those pages still stuck together. So I know you're a fraud and that you turn down articles without even reading them all the way through. Well, White sent her a brief reply. He said, dear madam, at breakfast when I taste an egg, I don't have to eat it all to determine if it's bad. Good answer. See, the principle is when it comes to testing a belief system, you don't have to examine every single belief to know if it's false. You go, I, I know he's off a little bit on some major doctrines, but you know what? I like the guy. I really like what she says. It's a bad egg. It's a bad egg. We should what? Dabble in it? Play around with it? Avoid it. Keep your distance. Stay balanced. All right, I got to get to the last point. Improving our worship How? Rely on God's grace. Check your attitudes. Stay balanced. Thirdly, we need to rely on God's grace. Here's our confidence right here. The work that God has begun in us, he will complete it. You can bank on it. He is faithful. We sang that this morning. He will do it. Look at verse 23. Beautiful benediction here. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body, meaning all of you, be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Now it's said around this time of year that Santa has a list, and he's checking it twice to find out if you've been naughty or nice. I saw a hat that said naughty, nice, and then it's a try to be nice. Check. That's, where, oh, that's our best bet. Like, I can just try to be. He's checking it. And his whole bag of gifts, your Christmas list you gave him, is uncertain for you. If you don't do the right things, you might lose all the things you put on your Christmas list. Everything depends on your performance, right? Be good for goodness sake. No. No. The genius of God's Christmas list he has for us is that God will fulfill his own Christmas list. He will work in us the very thing he wants from us as we allow him to in our lives. And he promises that he will finish what he has started and he will keep us blameless to the end. And you know what the idea is of blameless to the end? Child of God, child of God, when you get to the finish line and you stand before God, you will be blameless in that there will be no accusation that can stick you are free of condemnation. 
blameless. Why? Because you've been a pretty good person. You tried to be nice rather than naughty. Because of God's grace. Because of God's grace. His righteousness. Don't miss this. It's God's grace from start to finish. He didn't start and go, okay, I got it from here now. Start to finish, God's grace. And God is all about making us better worshipers of him. He, he's the end game. We're, we're imperfect worshipers now. But when we come to the end of this life, we will perfect our worship. We will then see in full the working of God's grace in our lives. Because worship, worship, and true worshipers celebrate grace. Having trouble rejoicing? Struggling to pray? Don't seem to have it in you to give thanks? Well, is there anything in your life too big that God's grace can't handle? Author and pastor Jim Van Iperin tells this story. He tells it of Margaret who attended his church that he served in many years ago. And he says this. Margaret was confined to a wheelchair for most of her adult life. Margaret lived with a body both contorted and misshapen, ravaged by multiple sclerosis. She spoke softly, often slurring her words and barely audible grunts. She drooled constantly and was in pain nearly all her waking hours. Margaret had grounds for complaint, but she did not complain. She loved Jesus. She, he says she never missed church Sunday mornings, evening, prayer meeting, special gatherings. Whenever the church doors were open, Margaret was always there, always in a neatly pressed dress. He goes on to say, one night after I first arrived at the church, I was conducting a forum, asking questions and facilitating dialogue with a group of about 20 people. I asked people to tell me their favorite Bible verse or a passage from Scripture that was personally meaningful. And several people offered verses. He said that I noted on the flip chart up front. Well, after many people spoke, Margaret got my attention and she wanted to say something. Now, most of the people had recited their verses from memory or read them aloud from Scripture. But since Margaret could not speak, she directed me to the verse that she wanted me to look up. And I looked up the verse for the group and then I read it to the group for her. This is her meaningful verse. Psalm 119, verse 71. It was good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn thy statutes. Wow. That is a true worshiper. Give, take away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Her wheelchair, her affliction, was a testimony to grace. And to be better worshipers is to better understand his grace. Here's the thing. We're all broken in one way or another. We're all in need of his grace to save us and then to sustain us, and we're in need of his grace to get us home. It's all about God's grace from start to finish. And he'll enable us to carry out his Christmas list for his glory. Let's pray. God, thank you for these words. May it touch our hearts. May it speak into our lives. May we go from here, yes, convicted certainly, but built up, edified, encouraged, 
ready to walk this day, this week, next several weeks in your grace. God, it is amazing grace from start to finish. And we give you praise for that in Jesus' name. Amen.